Welcome to the Jameson Files. I'm the Jameson Files host, Carrie Weber from the Jameson Group, and we are thrilled to be recording this episode of the Jameson Files live at the American Dental Association's SmileCon 2022 meeting in Houston, Texas. So um, we're here in their podcasting area in the exhibit hall at their meeting, and it's just an absolute pleasure to be a part of the podcasters and influencers that are here recording live content for their podcasts at this annual meeting. And I'm thrilled to be sharing the main stage um, and this episode with our dear friend, colleague, Jameson client, um, but truly Jameson friend, Dr. Mark Hyman. So Dr. Hyman, thank you so much for being with me again. Carrie, thanks so much for having me. I feel like I'm in the presence of royalty. So uh, what a gift you are to dentistry and your whole organization. I am forever grateful for your mama and your daddy and the whole organization and what you all have built and this sustained is just staggering. Wow. So I thank you for that. Thank you. And you know we're already friends, so you don't have to say those things to me anymore. I thought it sounded good. <laughs> no, but the, the honor and pleasure is all mine. Dr. Hyman is speaking once again at the ADA meeting this year, uh, two times, correct? Two, two times, times today. Yep. And um, you have been speaking and been a speaker and an educator um, for, I'm going to say over 20 years at this point. Am I, am I guessing correct? correct? And um, beyond the, the extraordinary practice that you built, Dr. Hyman um, is an adjunct professor at the UNC Adams School of Dentistry. Uh, again, a key influencer, speaker, and educator across the country um, and has been recognized as a leader in continuing education for years and years and truly, truly a remarkable contributor and gift to the dental community, helping to motivate and educate doctors and teams to realize their ideal vision for their practice and how to elevate patient care um, through the ways that you teach in all of your conferences. So I wanna take an angle in our session today. You've been a guest on the Jamison Files yes. podcast before. And today I wanna to take a, a different approach and I wanna talk about with you the power of education and continuing education um, for teams, for dentists and teams, but also the power of education with our patients. Would that be all right with you? Sure. So let's start with you and your story and your story, um, you, you know, we, we know your story as a dentist and the amazing practice that you built for yourself, but I'd love to learn a little bit and share with those that watch and listen your story as an educator. Um, what has led you to where you are today as the prominent speaker and educator that you are? Sure, Carrie, I appreciate that. Why am I here? You know, I would probably be considered the worst first semester dental student in the history of the UNC Adams School of Dentistry. I was our class president and cruising along and midterms came and I got crushed and barely made it out of first semester dental school to the point that the first week back of spring semester, Thursday night, I quit because I knew I couldn't be a dentist and I'd never make it and I hated every part about it. And a young professor, Dr. Ron Strauss, saved my life when I went to the dean's office, told him I was going to quit walked out and ran into Professor Strauss, who just said, Mark, it's okay. Being a dental student is nothing like being a dentist. Give it another hour. Give it a day. See how you do. Mm -hmm. And I did. I muddled my way through the spring semester, started in clinic, and graduated in three and a half years. So kind of went from worst to first. But I resented how we were taught, Carrie. There mm -hmm. was so much intimidation and humiliation, mm -hmm. and it just didn't have to be the way. That's not the way to motivate excellence to me. Mm -hmm. So... I, when I was a resident at UNC, I got to do the orientation for the first-year dental students, and I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And then three years out of practice, my professor, Ron Strauss, asked me to come back and tell my story to the first-year dental students. Being the excited young speaker, the thought of going back to the dental school, I've got diarrhea and I'm nauseated, little <laughs> TMI. And I work the morning, and I jump in my car, and I'm out of gas. I'm like, man fly to the gas station, fill up, jump back in, and I hear a rip. I've ripped my pants from my belly button to my tush. <laughs> and I'm like John Belushi in Animal House going back and forth. I'm like, ah, what do you do? I figured I'll be behind a podium. No one will see and my pants are ripped. Then I thought, idiot, get out of here. I flew home, got a pair of pants, drove to Chapel Hill 90 miles an hour, run into the room. The audience, the students are already waiting for me. I'm 10 minutes late. I'm sweating. I'm nauseated. 
I run up and say something and a couple of them laughed and I said something else and a few more laughed and I said the third thing and they started howling and I finished and I got a standing ovation and Professor Strauss came up to me and said, you just had a magic moment there. Mm. You don't get many of those. And I was like, I don't know what that was, but I want to do that again. Again. So I've done the intro to private practice class at UNC for 32 years. Wow. So since 1989, I've taught every first year dental student. I did not realize that. Yeah, that was my magic moment with ripped pants. (laughs) So, um, and I muddled my way through some small study clubs and basically my results were, he's a nice guy. He's trying hard, Mm. but it wasn't impactful. So that was 1989. 1990, I started Panky Institute where I went every January through six years and I got to teach there. And one of the panky precepts is quid pro quo. Too much is given, much is expected. You're expected to give back to the profession. So I I had the calling to try to spread the word for our type of dentistry. I did my first study club in 1993. Mm. Uh, The payment for that meeting was they paid for my dinner. Well, hey. And you got to like that. So I had that going for me. And then I'm from Dr. Dennis Shimbori from the CDA, rest in peace. Dennis was dear friends with a friend of mine at UNC. I saw the ADA was going to be at Hawaii, and I thought, Mm. I'd like to be paid to go to Hawaii. So I called my friend and said, I want to speak at the ADA. And she kind of looked at me like, you're on drugs, son. Like, yes, I am. She said, you don't do it that way. You have to be scouted. So I'm going to try to get you on the CDA at Anaheim. So April 1999, thanks to Dennis Shimbori, I had my first gig in front of the scouts. And with the CDA, they, you pay your way there, you pay your food, you pay your hotel, but you get an hour. Right. And one hour before I start, I'm in the Anaheim Hilton with my wife and our three kids, and I absolutely decompensate. I'm like, I don't have an opening story. Mm-hmm. And I'm stomping around the hotel room, and my brown-eyed girl, Danielle Rose, I feel a tug on my sleeve. It's my eight-year-old Danielle. I'm like, being, being the calm father that I am, I said, what? <laughs> and she looked up at me with those beautiful brown eyes and said, Dad... What if nobody comes to hear you? Now, my wife, my Jersey girl said, honey, these Californians can be tough, so don't try to be witty. Don't try to be clever. Don't try to be cute. Just be yourself. <laughs> and that was my opening story at the CDA. And from that one meeting, I got ADA, AGD, Yankee, Chicago, Greater New York, Hinman, TDA, Florida. I ran the table. And the rest is history. So that was pretty cool. So again, um, I bought basically a bankrupt private practice July 1st. 1986, my third month of private practice, I heard Linda Miles speak, which was life-changing. Then I heard this woman from Oklahoma, Dr. Kathy Jameson, (laughs) who just blew blew me out of the water. So April 99, I spoke at the CDA in Anaheim. In May, Dr. Billy Dorfman from Beverly Hills had the discus dental meeting, and he and I had a conversation, and he put me on the discus meeting took all the speakers to Cirque du Soleil O at the Bellagio and sat my wife and I next to doctors Kathy and John Jameson, and that changed my life. So then I took my team to hear Kathy speak, and they were blown away. So we started working with Jameson Management, Jameson Consulting, and that was impactful at a partnership that wasn't working out. So Dr. Kathy Jameson spent a full day with my partner trying to raise her game. Then we lovingly decided to part ways. 2005, I got fired, moved to my new building. Kathy came back in and we went all in with coaching and consulting. So we had every four months, we had two days of in-office consulting. I had a monthly management call, leadership call, and a weekly marketing call. So I say that to my students. I'm like, well, coaching's expensive, isn't it? And the answer that the UNC students will say is compared to what? Mm -hmm. So I probably paid, I'm guessing at the time, I don't know, $40,000 for coaching and a 24-month period, my practice, my million-dollar practice only grew over $500,000 working fewer days per month. Now, people listening to this, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? To grow $500,000 working less days per month, what is that over 24 months? It's one extra tooth a day. It's one extra crown in your eight-hour day having elegant coaching and consulting that look at your 25 systems and just tweak each of the systems. The white bread average Jameson client goes up 25%, 30%. I only went up 52% in 24 months and kept growing after that. So that was the gift of coaching, constant coaching and leadership training and marketing training. And so that I build that into my seminars to say, 
you don't have to humiliate a student to learn and grow. You don't have to humiliate a teammate to inspire them and turn mm. them on. You just have to give them predictable systems and train them and get out of their way. Mm-hmm. So that's been the gift to me that your family and your organization gave to me because mm. I was a wild man bouncing from room to room, putting up big numbers in misery. Mm. And just by refining the systems, it gave me such joy, better patient care, better team retention, better profitability, and a lot more fun. You know, at this meeting in the opening session, they had Brene Brown, who presented. And something that she said that I thought was really amazing was um, it was about education and and actually being willing to be a continual learner and she said you want people you don't want people that know it all you want people that want to learn it all it's brilliant and i just was really moved by that because i think those of us that are that are in this realm of education i mean we live that we are continual learners and we want to create and instill in dental practices and, and in the profession a culture of continuous learners and you really did establish that you've made that a foundational part of your practice vision with your team um you you know so grateful to have had had the relationship we had with you and your team when you were practicing, but it, we weren't the only ones. And you were you were taking your team members to education. You were giving them clinical education. You were giving them leadership education. Uh, tell me, what role did that vision and foundation of continuous education for your team? What did how did that impact them, and how did that impact the practice for you as a culture in your practice? That's a great question, My Superstar dental assistant, Athena Escovedo Calloway, my 19-year dental assistant, had left her last practice when she asked her former boss, she said, I'd love to have some continuing education. He looked at her and said, I just don't think you need it. So Mm. she fired him. She came to see me. She stayed almost 20 years. So the privilege of helping these teammates grow Mm. and stretch and learn new things. I was the first second CERAC user in the state of North Carolina, Mm -hmm. I think 1997. And I got the dang thing, and I'm computer illiterate. And I trained one of the teammates on it. I had them trained, and then they quit. And I'm like, oh, man, I got this equipment. I don't know what to do, so I better learn it. But I, I talked to my audiences and to my students about focusing on CEO doctor-only procedures mm-hmm. and training the team and getting out of the way for them to do all the other things. Mm-hmm. So why would you leave my practice if you get to play with the CBCT, get to play with the intro cameras, with the isolite, with the buffered lidocaine, mm-hmm. with all of these things that make such a colossal difference in your practice. Yes. Cross-training is huge as well, because in the d- days of COVID, when someone's out sick, it's not good enough to say, well, we would do your CAD CAM restoration, but the person who knows how to do it's not here. Yes. So we had all the business team x-ray certified, so they'd go in the back and take an emergency PA, emergency CBCT, an emergency Panorex. They knew how to run the autoclave and the statum. The whole clinical team could go up front and check in a new patient, use our Weave software, apply for care credit, mm-hmm. get patients to give us five-star reviews. Mm-hmm. So with that cross-training, not only is the team more valuable, but you appreciate each other more. Mm-hmm. I tried to bring in a lot of management leadership principles of how we would treat each other. Um, inside of dentistry, my time at the Panky Institute and at Spear Education changed my life outside of dentistry was Dale Carnegie training. Yes. And I say to my audiences, why would you want to study material titled How to Win Friends and Influence People? Right. How to Stop Worrying and Control Your Stress, you think? Right. So that was huge. And I've had some people say to me, Dr. Mark, let me get this straight. You spent $2,000 on each teammate to do Dale Carnegie training. What happens if they leave? Yeah. And I said, what if you don't spend $2,000 training on them and they stay? That's exactly so right. the joy for these women, for me, is they were bright to begin with. I've had people look at a picture of my team and say, well, you just got lucky. You got all these great teammates. And I'll say, look at this picture. Every one of them worked for someone else, mm-hmm. left them, came to me and stayed. Mm-hmm. Because I loved on them and inspired them and trusted them and trained them and got out of their way. For me, as a dentist, I set a goal to do 100 hours of continuing education every mm-hmm. year to get my fellowship at the Academy of General Dentistry, my mastership award. I went through the Panky curriculum, the Spear curriculum. I heard Pete Dawson. I heard John Coyce. So I was crystal clear that I wasn't that bright and that talented, but I was a worker. So, And pe- you wanted to learn. I did You were a continual learn. learner. Well, I, rec- I had a 
classmate of mine come up to one of my seminars, Carrie. He said, Mark, I'm doing it just the way they taught me in dental school. I'm like, back off, sailor. I'm not doing anything the way they taught me in dental school. The principles of quality don't change. But man, the materials do. The techniques do. Why would you brag I'm doing something that's 40 years old? So that doesn't make sense. I, I, and the other piece of this further is look who you meet at CE courses. Right. The losers of dentistry don't work with consultants. They don't buy the high-tech equipment and train their team. They don't go to these courses. Some of the greatest learning that you're going to have at a dental meeting, at this magnificent ADA meeting, the lectures are sensational, but then you meet with colleagues and friends or you meet people at mm-hmm. breakfast, lunch, and dinner and say, how did you hire? How do you fire? Who's, who consultants mm-hmm. do you work with? What books have you read? What podcasts? What webinars? Mm-hmm. So I love it from Dale Carnegie organization, three magic words, success leaves clues. Yes. So. You know, something, well, so many things that you said in that, um, when we talk with doctors that um, are seeking out help or wanting things to be to change or be different, often they're coming and they feel overwhelmed by the amount that they are responsible for in the tasks and the day-to-day of their business. And education and training for your team allows delegation and the building up of leaders within your team to do what they can do and, and so that you can delegate out to other people in your team so that you only have to do what only you can do. Uh, Because eventually doctors that aren't delegating and haven't built up a culture of leaders in their practice, you you will be limited by your own capacity. Absolutely. And so, you know, you you have to become comfortable with delegation and create a culture of continual learning. And that was another thing, a takeaway I had of what you shared about your story is you had team that came to you seeking out to work with you because somewhere down the line you had established this vision in your practice and word gets around of where the culture is. And where people can thrive and develop and grow and do more within their role in their professional career. And when you make space for that and you are intentional about creating a culture like that and build upon that in your practice vision, the right people start to come to you. And that, I feel, is the story of of your practice over time the more high-performing you became and the more you you allowed and delegated to your team to become leaders, the more potential leaders came to you to work with you. Would you agree that that was the story? It is so true. A term that I absolutely hate is UCR, usual, customary, reasonable. Is that something to be proud of? Hey, we're the UCR dental office. We're average. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to be anything UCR. Mm -hmm. I don't want to treat my team that way. And I hope young dentists listening to this and the more matures Mm. will recognize that the power of abundance instead of scarcity, Mm -hmm. it's huge. Why wouldn't you train your team? Well, because they're going to want to raise. Well, if they go all in on Jameson training and we grow $500,000, am I going to share the love? You dang tootin', I'm going to share the love. Look at the impact on my practice. Look at the impact on everybody's life. For me, philosophically, Carrie, I don't know how many of your offices do this, our rule is that I would pay for new education for anything the teammates mm. wanted to take inside or outside of dentistry. If they had a course or a, a program at their church, synagogue, mosque, and they wanted to do it, I'll pay for it because it makes them a better person, mm. happier at home, a better communicator, a more peaceful warrior, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So that just seemed to be common sense to me. I, I think for doctors on this as well, to put your ego aside and recognize you're not supposed to know it all. Mm. You know, so much of our training in dental education is I'm going to teach you, I'm going to ask you a question, you give me an answer, you get the A. Mm-hmm. Where I really tried to empower the team to ask better questions and to be better listeners. And the end result is that is almost always the patient's going to end up asking for the level of care that you yes. think is appropriate for them. Well, and that is a perfect entree into another question that I have for you because. So the story goes, you, by nature, are that you, know, you have this desire to continuously develop. You don't want to go stagnant. You want to be continuously improving. You start to attract that in your team. You start to um, make that a reality with your team, developing them. And in doing so, you're not just developing their skills, but which you did, 
you develop their skills and help them to thrive in the utilization of the technology and the tools that you were bringing into the practice and the systems that you were integrating into your practice so that it would run well, but also in their skill sets and how they could communicate and how they support you in presentation of treatment to patients, in uh, case acceptance, in patient loyalty, and all of those things. So tell me about education from that communication role that you and your team played in how you educated patients. What was the trickle effect in that? What were some of the things that you did or the tools you used or the skills that you all developed that helped in the education and the relationship development, trust development, and ultimately loyalty of your patients? Well, one thing that Jameson Management twisted my arm to do was take my number one producing hygienist out of the clinical arena and make her treatment coordinator, which I thought was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Are you kidding me? I got a dynamite hygienist that's crushing at chair side. Why would I take her out of the chair? So some fool with two PhDs suggested that to me, and I fought her over it. And finally, I said, (laughs) yes, six weeks later, this teammate as treatment coordinator had added $80,000 of treatment in six weeks. Why do you think that is? Because she had time to do what she was trained to do was go through the charts. You, with care credit, you get your list of open to buy, look at the diagnosed and undone treatment where you've already got comfortable financial, just sitting there unused, mm-hmm. having time to talk to the patients and yes. not rushing them in and out. One of the diseases in dentistry to me is crown of the year club because mm. it's low confrontation and after the insurance, it's not too many dollars a day out of the patient's pocket. Instead of saying, would you like the benefit of optimal care, of comprehensive mm-hmm. care? Mm-hmm. Um, when we dabbled with orthodontics in the practice, I did training in six-month smile and Invisalign. So being the type of leader that I was, I sent my dental assistants first for the training mm-hmm. to say, will we do this in this office? What will your role be? Mm. I don't see a whole lot of that as CEO, doctor-only no, procedures. I love that. So if I invest in you, will you go do the training and tell me, does that fit the practice? So that, that was a stroke of... Ignorantly, it was a stroke of genius by me because the team bought into it when it was time to decide what software to use. We went to the Hinman Dental meeting in Atlanta. I took the whole team. I said, here's the top four softwares. You all go test drive them. Tell me which one you want. I'll pay for whatever you want, whatever you think is in our best interest. So I want, again, I want our doctors to focus on CEO, doctor-only decisions, the big impactful boulders, and train our magnificent teammates to do the other things. Well... You know, one of my, I think the last time you were on the podcast with me, this is where I got this from. It's one of my favorite things that you say. I I share it all the time. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry, thanks. (laughs) Can I? Okay, thanks. Um, Is that you always say, um, in, in terms of treatment presentation, the moment you stopped telling patients what they needed and started asking patients what they wanted, everything changed. And your point being that when you started engaging in a conversation differently with the patients and allowing them to be a part of that discovery process um, in their care, that they were more engaged. They were more receptive. They didn't feel threatened or pushed upon to do this treatment. It's something that they were exploring with you and making a healthy decision with you about. And what it sounds like you were doing with your team is a little bit of the same. Instead of telling them we're going to use this tool or we're going to start doing things this way, you ask them to be a part of that discovery process of what does right look like for our practice? Um, Which of these do you like the best and could see being the most beneficial for your role in the practice, for our patients, for the team, for the practice, because what we know is, for me, if I were a member of your team, if I'm participating in the solution finding and I am helping to make those choices and decisions with you, then I automatically have a stronger sense of ownership, right? Then if you were to say, come in, hey, okay, everybody, I just went to the ADA and I bought these things and we're gonna start, I watched this great speaker and we're gonna start doing things this way starting this week, okay? And half the team rolls their eyes and says to each other, oh God, just give it two weeks and he'll be done. He'll calm down. He'll be done. 
give it two weeks and we'll just go back to normal. But when we say, here's the vision, here's where I want to go, here's where I want my practice to be, are you all on board for this? And when the answer is yes, then to start exploring together, okay, what do we need to do? What resources do we need to find together to get us closer to that ideal? And I feel like that's that's what you did, both with your patients and with your team. It, it just seems like it's easy to me. I have a slide in my talk from a webinar that I did with you, and it was on Facebook, so it was on Facebook. It must be true. And I think the quote, as you said, was, when I stopped telling that's patients right. what they needed and started listening to what they wanted. Yes. Everything changed when I tried. It doesn't change that they need care. Yeah. It doesn't change that you are the diagnoser. What changes is how we engage in that conversation with them. Carrie, it kills me when I hear a dentist say, here's what I would do. And I want to say, who asked you? Yeah. You know, it, you don't tackle people at Walmart and bring them into your office. They walked in voluntarily, which says to me, they're interested in buying some level of health care. Yes. So shouldn't you have the courtesy and the love and care and compassion to say, you tell me in your own words how healthy you want to be, mm -hmm. how soon you want to get there. Yes. Why'd you come in? What's important to you? Who are the decision makers? What's your budget? Tell me what success looks like. And you just sit back and listen. And it's hard for the students because they weren't trained that way. When I hear patients responding the way they did, it, it really was colossal carry. It's interesting. I've had a handful of people say, well, you're just a slick salesman. And I'm like, perhaps. Is it slick because it seems natural? It seems practice? It's, right. It's honestly, I don't want to do treatment on someone that doesn't want it. Right. Because that's a quick way to an unhappy patient, a one-star review, a lawsuit, someone saying this crown never fit and I'm not paying for it. I want my mm -hmm. money back. Life's too short. Mm -hmm. My dear friend Keith Phillips, who teaches with me at UNC, has an expression which I love that your patient is always right, right? Mm. They just don't have to be your patient. <laughs> Who they are in their life at this time, it's okay. They yeah. just do not have to be your patient. Yes. And it's okay to tell them what you need is not what I do. Let me help you grow elsewhere. And it's a, that, that piece is when it's really important to know who you are as a, as a provider, as a practitioner, right. who you are as a practice, um, having that clarity so that you can explain who you are and how you care for patients to patients so that they can make the decision for themselves if this is the right fit for them. You know, that needs to be a part of the message that you put out in the world when you're marketing, when you're having that initial patient phone call, when, you're, when they're coming in for that new patient appointment. We need to be the, the spokespeople for the purpose and vision of the practice of what patient care looks like here so that those patients can decide, this sounds good to me, that I'm interested in this. And then, you know, my dad, um, when he was still practicing, he's obviously been retired for a while now, out to pasture, as he <laughs> likes to say, as we say Literally in Oklahoma, we're out to pasture. And, um, but when he was practicing, you know, a lot of the foundations of Jameson case presentation, patient experience are rooted in what he was doing in his practice with his patients. And um, it was really all about asking permission, you know, may I have permission to present to you what I would consider ideal treatment? And if it were, if it were myself or a member of my family, this is the kind of care I would want for them or for me. Um, and I'd like to have permission to share that with you. You have permission to say no, but may I have permission to start with what I feel would be ideal? And we go from there. And um, asking permission to keep that door open so that fight or flight with the patients doesn't take over, you know. And something else that I learned from you and from my father and all the great mentors in my life that have practiced dentistry over the years um, and something I learned from you is about the sacred places, sacred places and spaces and time and tools to help. You know, you really um, bought into and embraced using a consultation space to have conversations. And um, I think some practices do that and do that really well and maximize that space in the practices. Some practices don't even have a consultation room and um, some practices have it and don't use it because they feel like they don't have time for it or they don't know how to choreograph that in the patient's experience. But would, I guess I'm kind of feeding what I want you to say, but would you agree with me? Yes, dear. That <laughs> I can hear my wife. Don't you yes, dear me. 
Would you agree that having that consultation space for you and your treatment coordinator to have conversations with patients, did it make a difference? It's an extraordinary difference, Carrie. And just think about it. I ask my students sometimes, what's the biggest purchase you ever made? And they'll say, you know, 5,000, 10,000. I'm like, no, it's your education for 250,000, 500,000, whatever it was. But think about the biggest purchase anybody listening has made in their life. Did they make that purchase with a lobster bib on, lying back in a chair with a bright light in their face? Thank you. Or did they sit in what felt like a living room, a, di- yes. a comfortable den, a safe space yes. where you get to say to patients, it's your body, it's your health. Yes. You guide me. And I'm a big believer that there's no no in dentistry. There's not yet. Mm. So to us to look at a patient and say, you obviously don't value optimal care dentistry, mm-hmm. that, that's not the case. Maybe no one's given them that privilege. That's what I learned from Erwin Becker at the Pankey Institute. He looked at me one day and said, Mark, the reason most of your patients haven't accepted optimal care dentistry is no one ever offered it to them. No one ever, because they assume, assume the answer is no. Because someone's young, old, white, black, green, yellow, Jewish, Christian, Islamic, agnostic. You assume, you just well, they're a farmer. Yeah, you don't they know. Yeah. They're a farmer that whips out a wads of hundreds. That's right, a coffee can. Yeah, it's just, you don't know. And 27-year-olds are like, a what? What are you talking that's about? That's funny. But, um, the, the little pods, right? <laughs> Nespresso. You mean, you mean my Nespresso machine? Um, yeah, and I think it's uh, the, the education, the communication, and having that space to do it. Because ADA studies show year over year over year when they survey the consumer, the patient, of the reasons why they don't go forward with treatment is cost, time, and fear. So cost, convenience, and fear are the top three reasons why they're not moving forward with treatment. And so if fear is one of the top three reasons and we're presenting treatment to them with a bib on in, a, in the chair that's causing them the most anxiety and fear. And our goal ultimately as healthcare providers is to educate, right? And help educate the patients on optimal care. What part of that education are they gonna retain? And you know, it's just to, to think about it from the lens of the patient, the lens of the person receiving the care. We get so caught up in how busy our day is. On we've got another person in a chair in another room. We've got the, you know, da, 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 da. And we're forgetting that that patient journey is such a key piece to their decisions that they're making about you and about their care along the way. If they feel coerced, they're not going to value what you did. And you look at them and say, but my margins were gorgeous. And they're like, but I wasn't ready for this. I didn't own it. Why did my last dentist tell me about this? Let me think about it. You need a new car. Uh It just goes on and on. And nobody likes the confrontation. Carrie, you touched on a really key point. If you don't have time to establish a relationship and have comfortable financial arrangements and let things marinate a bit, there's a handful of patients. You can look at them and say, you need eight crowns and they'll go rock and roll. Right. Here's a check. Here's my charge card. Here's a wad of hundreds. That's unusual in today's world. That right. Not that people won't say yes to it. I had the privilege of treating some of the wealthiest families in North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, and men and women of incredibly modest means that a single crown was not easy for them. Yes. I tried to teach my students as well. When you talk about breaking something up, my blessed father said you can lift an elephant if you cut them into small pieces. Mm-hmm. So I love it to ask, well, how much is a crown in your practice? And people will quote all sorts of numbers. And I'll basically say, how many cups of Starbucks a day? So basically <laughs> oh, it's $3 no. a day for a year. Well, doesn't matter yeah. what the number is, yeah. but you'd break it into something that patients can say, yeah, I'll spend $3 a day for a year, Yes. $4 a day for a year, 1500 for a crown buildup. That's a lot of money, mm-hmm. which I hope the answer is compared to what? Mm-hmm. If it's three, four dollars a day to keep a body part, yes. you can end up spending. If you get ten years out of this, you'll have spent ten, fifteen cents a day yeah. to keep a body part. What what a gift. Yeah. Well, and you know, when you think about the cost being the number one deterrent of treatment acceptance, that also supports having a consultation space. Big time. Using your tools, using photography, using before and afters, having a place where you can have conversations, those those challenging, difficult conversations for some patients, the overwhelming. You know, I am on the fear side. I actually am an anxious, anxious patient. You know, I'm the daughter of a dentist. I should not be that. But 
I'm going to release that should because it is who I am. I, for, for various reasons, I am anxious about treatment. And I have had the experience of significant treatment being presented to me while I was in the clinical chair laid back. And I couldn't get out of that place fast enough. Not because I didn't value what they were saying to me, but I was so emotionally overwhelmed with what they had said to me. And they assumed, and here's a kind of a backwards assumption, they assumed because I was the daughter of John Jameson's daughter. I've been in dentistry my whole life. Surely this is no big deal. I'm just going to tell you right now. Well, that was incorrect. Had the same thing happened to my daughter where somebody presented an extraordinary treatment plan to her when she wanted a little bonding on tooth number eight Mm -hmm. and she was devastated and it just it kills me so part of what I hope the audience owns is to say it's not enough to go through the Panky Institute through Spear Education through Dawson through Coys it's not enough to just say well I'll pay for Dale Carnegie but I'm not going to do it I'll buy all this equipment but I'm not going to understand that people buy emotionally And they have to be in a safe place. They have to have time for things to marinate. Yes. Part of the brilliance of what you all teach is personality styles. Mm -hmm. Recognizing if you present your treatment plan to everybody like they're a mechanical engineer, you're going to miss 75% of your patients. And then you're going to say, they didn't value care. And it's like, no, you didn't present it in a way that's palatable to them, Mm -hmm. in a way that they could digest it, in the way that they could make a comfortable decision. Yes. And then be happy with your work and refer their friends and pay with appreciation and give you a five-star review. Because that, that is the joy of dentistry, Real, well done. When you take the time to get to know your patient mm-hmm. and you know your temperament and your time and your team is well-trained and then you put it all together and mm-hmm. it's the greatest, dentist, dentistry is the greatest profession in the world. We get to make a profound difference in people's lives, Carrie, and very yes. few of them die when we're working on them. <laughs> That's my favorite Well, and part. you know, as, as generations carry on, the younger generations, the studies are showing that in the workforce, younger generations are seeking more meaning in the work that they do than ever before. So it's not just about the money. It's about making meaning. So what better profession to be a part of than one that has significant meaning in a human being's confidence, function, um, you are life changers in these in your patients' lives, and you're helping giving them longevity, and you're on the front lines of identifying areas of concern, oral cancer screenings. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yes. And so if meaning is what you're looking for, then we need to combine that motivation to make meaning with building up our skills in terms of how to communicate, how to listen, how to take those, asking those questions and listening. And I love, you know, I want to go, a little bit back to what you had said that dental school students aren't trained to communicate. They're not trained to listen, but you know what? No one is. None of us as human beings are born excellent communicators. That is something that is practiced. Now, some people may have a better tendency, a more natural tendency toward, towards it, but we all have to learn how to, how to effectively communicate, how to listen, and, and how to uh, problem solve, and, and how to find solutions with people, and seeking out the solutions. And the practices that make that a priority to continuously work on communication skills and how to engage with the patient in that way, I feel, see the greatest results in terms of achieving their practice vision and achieving patient loyalty over time. It's it's so true. You know, I'm a quadruple Tar Heel, undergrad dental school residency. Now I teach at the school. When I was a second year dental student, we had a freshman from Wilmington, North Carolina, who showed up with his tongue sticking out, number 23, Michael... Michael, uh, what was that guy's name? What was his name? Michael Jordan. It's like a splash in the pan. You know, I would say to my audience, Michael Jordan needed a coach. He needed Coach Dean yeah. Smith. He needed Phil Jackson. Tiger Woods could have used a different coach, perhaps. But that <laughs> everybody needs coaching, and Michael needed coaching, and constantly practicing and refining and changing, and changing his game to reflect how the game was changing. Early in Michael's career, the Detroit Pistons beat the Bulls consistently and part of their game plan was to beat the tar out of Michael and physically crush him. And he spent the next summer lifting weights and getting in better shape so that he could 
handle the more physicality in basketball. Carrie, I want to take a half a step back. The golden rule is what? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Yeah. So that's what we want for people, right? For a second there, I panicked. I was like, is that the golden I, I, rule? I think it is. So repeat that, please. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Which I want to lovingly say, who cares how you want to be done unto you? The platinum rule, I think, should rule, which is do unto others as they want to be done unto. Oh, I so, like that. Here's what I would do. Well, who cares? Yeah. How about me? How about my goals for my health, teeth, and smile? How about my values, my time, my temperament? So I, I would prefer that we in dentistry take that perspective and that goal oh. to say, let me take the time for you to make it crystal clear what you want, how you want it delivered, when you want it, what's comfortable financially. And then I may say, you know, what you need is not what I do. Mm. It's okay to look at a patient and say, let me help you find someone who'll do it that fashion. That's not how we do it here. Mm-hmm. One of the things I hated worse than anything was doing a crown on tooth number 30 that had one of those M-O-D-F-L, T-W-A-K-L-M. Do you know what I'm talking about? A <laughs> little bit of enamel sticking out going, yoo-hoo. And on 29 and 31, there were big M-O-D-F-Ls. Mm. And the patients, they would just do one crown. I'm like, great, I'm going to do an ideal crown next to two old failing alloys, right. metal fillings. Right. Like, why can't I restore the quadrant and do it once and do it right? Mm-hmm. The same porcelain, the same cement, the same occlusion. One shot, boom, done. Mm-hmm. So to say, well, that's how I prefer it. The patient say, I don't care. Mm. But the platinum rule would say, Carrie, what would your benefit be? You own a booming consulting management leadership company. You've got a handsome husband, gorgeous children. You're traveling all over the world teaching, coaching. You want to come in to see Dr. Mark six times, four times, two, or one. That's right. What would work for you as a busy professional? A one, please. Cash flow wise, how many cups of Starbucks would be comfortable for your family over a two-year period? Right. Two or three. So to break it into that perspective... Here's what I want to do because it's better for me technically. You kind of say, who cares? Mm. But if I can get into your world and say, would it benefit you to come once instead of six visits? Mm-hmm. Would it benefit you to get shots once instead of six times? To not get on an airplane with a provisional, a temporary crown on that could come off when you eat that delicious airline food. <laughs> you know, it just, that, that is the joy for me was to have figured that out. Yes. To outlisten the competition and say, mm-hmm. If I can just get you to tell me what the answer is, how would you like to take a test? Mm. There's 10 questions and all the answers are already circled. Mm -hmm. That's to me what sort of ideal treatment planning is, is I keep asking questions of the patient say to me, here's how I want this served. Here's how I want to be treated. And there's no questions about it. So, I mean, what a joy to take the time to give patients the respect to say, you guide me Mm -hmm. and I'm going to do the very finest dentistry I can do for you that will reach your goals for your health, teeth, and smile. Yes. That's a lot of fun. You know, one of uh, there's a book called Presence by Amy Cuddy. And one of the things that she says in the studies that they find, one of the characteristics of... Look at all those cute kids. One of, those char- one of the characteristics of influencers that have great success when they if business owners entrepreneurs that are that are pitching opportunities or whatever the case may be when asked by the companies that that move forward with these people what is it about them and one of the key characteristics was passionate enthusiasm passionate enthusiasm for whatever conversation they were in to be present in that conversation with passionate enthusiasm and um i love that because when i think back even in my own story of the conversations that i now have with people and in my work and and so on it's a mindset shift that doctors must experience and and team members have to experience in terms of their confidence and what they are centering themselves on that gives them passionate enthusiasm to have that conversation. That those beautiful questions you are asking, the way that you want to take the time and make the effort to figure things out with the patient and learn from their perspective, that's a passionate enthusiasm and a genuine curiosity and interest in them. And it's centered in your confidence in who you are and what you do and why you do what you do. And where I shifted and have improved significantly in conversations um, in in my realm that are similar to what team members and doctors experienced in treatment presentation for my world was to determine for myself, is there value in what we do? 
What do we do that makes a difference? Um, how do we help people and get centered and comfortable and confident in the things that we do? And I believe wholeheartedly in that what we do well, and then be interested in if this person wants to have a conversation with me about what we do, it has to start with what they want. Absolutely. What are your goals? What are your expectations? If, if you could change things, what would right look like for you? And where are you right now? And what would your expectations of working with us be to help you get closer to that? So when team members, when doctors can shift their mindset in conversations with patients to be genuinely curious and passionately enthusiastic about, this is what we do and I believe in this. Now I want to know truly, truly, I want to hear, how can we help you? And I feel like that when you enter into a conversation with that kind of energy, everybody leans in, right? I lean in because you're asking me about me. They lean in and they feel safe. They feel safe. And they give you an honest answer, which sometimes is going to be, not yet. I'm not ready for this. It's overwhelming. The answer has to be, that's fine. Yes. Not you don't value optimal care. To say you're not ready yet. Take good care of your teeth. Brush and floss. Let's come back and talk about it in a month. Yes. Whatever, wherever you are in your life, it is okay. I don't know where dentistry got off, Carrie, being so judgmental. Mm. And I, I just think it, it was from the barbershop days where mm. you'll do it because I said so. It's kind of back to your original question, why I got into education in the first place, mm. why I wanted to do seminars. I so resented the intimidation and humiliation. Mm. But man, is it fun to get in front of an audience and inspire them and liberate them. I've had people say to me, so Dr. Mark, you are a motivational speaker, right? I'm like, no, I'm your liberation speaker. I'm going to help you let go of limiting beliefs. Oh, I love that. And what, what a gift to somebody to say, you don't have to do it that way. I'm intrigued when my students say, you know, I, I want to do a lot of endo because that's profitable. I'm like, well, are you any good at it? Do you enjoy it? Yeah. If your mama was in the chair, would you do the endo? No, I'd send her to an endodontist. Well, then why are you doing it? <laughs> Right. How about get good at something that you have a skill set in or mm -hmm. take a bunch of endo courses and figure out, can you deliver excellence in that fashion? Mm. A word that I try to put in front of our students all the time, Carrie, is appropriate. Appropriate. Is this appropriate for your patient at this time in their life? Are you the appropriate person to deliver that? You know, I'm curious as we start to wrap things a little bit, um, coming back to the students, what do you see from the students in terms of the future of... Um, uh, of dentistry and the emphasis on education. Do you see a desire and a hunger to be continuous learners from the students that are coming up the ranks? Right. I, I, so I have the privilege of teaching at UNC Adams School of right. Dentistry. I'm on the admissions committee. So I get to screen a thousand students this year. We have over 1,700 initial applicants for 82 spots. Wow. It's frightening. Wow. They, they wouldn't let me be janitor there anymore. It's not even close. <laughs> But it, it's staggering to me. These young men and women are so smart and motivated, and they want to be part of something special, as you said. They want to stand for something. Mm. Do they want to be able to manage their debt? Yeah, sure they do. And that's, that's fair, too. You deliver excellence in a great relationship. You should be richly rewarded for that. Um, yes. But the, these students, they, they're dying for mentorship. Mm. They're dying for leadership. They're dying for role models that people are gonna, that are telling them it's going to be okay. Yes. You know, I'm not anti-DSO. I'm anti-anything that doesn't put the patient's best interest center stage. Yeah. So for the senior members of people listening to this podcast, I hope everybody will take on a young dentist as a, a mentee. I hope you'll participate in organized mm. dentistry. I hope you'll give back to your school, either your time or your money, and show these magnificent young men and women that dentistry can still be an extraordinary profession. I just did a talk for Dr. Gordon Christensen in Las Vegas last week, which was titled, Your Future's So Bright You Gotta Wear Shades. Oh, and that's I the way I feel it. about dentistry. This is not a good time to be in dentistry, I gang. It. it is a great time. The golden age is over. Great. This is the platinum diamond-crusted age. Why would you want to do dentistry without your DigiDoc intro camera, without your Isolite, without your buffering, without your CBCT, without the coaching that we have, without Dale Carnegie? The way from what I learned in 1980 at Chapel Hill to what I'm doing mm -hmm. in 2022, it's a staggering difference. And why would I go back to the old ways? There was nothing golden about that. It's the best we had at the time. And where we are today, imagine 20 years from now, that's going to be 
could be more, even more magnificent. So this is a colossal time to be in dentistry. It's a wonderful time for people to put small dollars into coaching, training, leadership, management systems that'll impact every hour that you practice the rest of your career. The profession is moving at light speed in evolution and technology and tools and the consumer mindset, the patient's mindset and, and how we serve patients. The opportunities are endless in terms of how you want to show up in this profession. So for anyone that's listening or watching the podcast, you know, my takeaways from this is, um, education will always play a key role in your continuous development as doctors, um, as practice leaders, as owners, um, the clarity of your vision of what you want your professional career to look like is going to be integral in, you helping, in helping you to make decisions of what to bring into your practice, how to evolve, how to continuously develop, but then to create that culture for a team to develop and grow and thrive and be a group of leaders with you which will in turn attract the right types of patients that want what you provide, that are ready to listen and partner with you for their care for their lifetimes. And education plays that piece. And for those students and the young professionals coming up, for those of us that have extra decades on our belt, to find those people and mentor them and help them, uh, you know, just like in, in hiking and camping, leave it better than you found it. And um, for us that are, you know, we are all standing on the shoulders of giants that have come before us that mentored and helped us thrive in our careers. And so for all of you dental professionals, be that for somebody else. And so, Mark, you are that for me and you are that for so many people. I'm so grateful for your mentorship and support. And I know many others feel the same way. And so thank you for giving us your valuable time today and being a guest once again on the Jameson Biles. We appreciate you so much. Thank you, Carrie. It's a privilege. What you all offer at Jameson is life-changing. And I I don't know where my personal and professional life would be without your entire family and team. They've impacted me in so many ways. And a a final phrase is Kanai, C-A-N-I, constant and never-ending improvement. Mm. The winners of dentistry focus on that, and that is the ticket to success. You mentioned goals. Think of the goals I set when I was 27 years old, starting Mm -hmm. in practice to now when I'm (laughs) 70 years old. (laughs) Man, I'm going to be 65 next year. You believe that? You said it. You said it out loud. I did with this hair. (laughs) Amazing. One can only hope. That's... uh, so. Pleased to have my hair. Um, <laughs> dentistry, again, it, it's the platinum diamond encrusted age of dentistry now, and it's about to get even better for a large part because of men and women just like you. So tell thank me, you. Tell me your phrase once again that you said, constant and never-ending. Kanai, C-A-N-I, constant and never-ending improvement. Constant and never-ending improvement. So uh, thank you for being with me, and thanks to all of the listeners and the watchers today of The Jameson Files. I'm Carrie Weber. Be well, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Jameson Files. Visit us online at jmsn.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify. See you next time.